Hi, uh, and good evening. Uh, my name's Claire Hemmings. I'm the current director of the uh, of LSE Gender. I was about to say the Gender Institute, which is what we were called. We're now the Department of Gender Studies. It's my great pleasure to start the season of LSE Gender Events for this year with our inaugural lecture by Dr. Marsha Henry. And I'd like to take the opportunity as well to invite you to join us for a drink after uh, the uh, lecture and Q&A on the fifth floor of um, the old building in the senior dining room. Uh, please also have a check um, of the website uh, for other gender events. Um, there's a really exciting programme uh, through the whole uh, year that we'd love to see you at uh, on future occasions. Marsha Henry is Associate Professor uh, in LSE Gender and Deputy Director of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, which she co-founded with Professor Christine Chinkin. Marsha did her first degree in English Literature at the University of British Columbia and then a Master's in Gender and International Development at Warwick, where she also did her PhD in Women's and Gender Studies. She did postdoctoral work back uh, in, in Women's and Gender Studies at the University of British Columbia before taking up a lectureship in politics at the University of Bristol. She moved to LSE Gender in 2009, where she's worked with colleagues since to develop our current GDG degree, as well as the WPS MSc running for the first time this year. So also a special welcome to the new cohort of the new degree. I mention all of this... <laughs> Um, because, in fact, these movements are all a really important part of, um, of Marsha's intellectual trajectory. Marsha is one of a small but increasing number of scholars who have a PhD in women's and gender studies. And welcome also to the new PhD students in the, on the gender programme uh, as well, because um, you're also part of this dedicated interdisciplinary band. Um, and I mention this because uh, it's important to the ways in which the concepts that Marsha takes up in her work, intersectionality, standpoint, militarised masculinities and femininities, to name just a few, derive from that interdisciplinary and critical context. She is truly, in other words, an interdisciplinary scholar in that her areas of expertise, security, development, sex work, reproduction, epistemology and methodology are points of convergence for diverse theoretical and conceptual intervention. Marsha's work takes a feminist and post-colonial approach to critical military studies, within which she's made an important set of interventions. She's done ethnographic work on peacekeeping and justice in the Global South by looking at women peacekeepers in Liberia, uh, the DRC, Sudan, Kosovo, among other places. In all her work... Uh, it strikes me that she's first interested in how peace and conflict are experienced at the everyday level in terms of practices of gender, sexuality, race and nationalism. And she uses these experiences as a way of challenging presumptions in the field about masculinity and femininity and about the distinctions between peace and conflict. In other words, she uses everyday experiences and ethnography precisely in order to contribute to the interdisciplinary fields as well as critical military studies. In my view, her article from 2015, Parades, Parties and Pests, Contradictions of Everyday Life in Peacekeeping Economies, is a particularly brilliant example of this close attention, as is her co-author book from 2009, Insecure Spaces. 
Marsh's early publications focus on authority and location in feminist and critical race research, including the pertinently titled Where Are You Really From? Representation, Identity and Power in the Fieldwork Experiences of a South Asian Diasporic, and uh, reassessing the research relationship, location, position, and power in fieldwork accounts, which she wrote with Saruchi uh, Tapar Bjorkert, and with Paul Highgate, Power and Positionality, the Politics of Peacekeeping Research. Marsha's writing practice reflect her research ethics then, in part through her demonstrable commitment also to co-authorship and joint research. And anyone who's worked with her uh, at LSE Gender or the Centre for Women, Peace and Security knows that she is also deeply invested as a feminist and post-colonial scholar in creating sustainable opportunities for a new generation of scholars and activists, as well as respecting the work of those who have paved the way. Tonight, Marsha will be talking to the title Reimagining Peacekeeping, Gender, Race and Militarization in the Global Order, and I ask you to join me in warmly welcoming her. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to start uh, my presentation by saying um, a couple of words of thanks, um, both to the current students that have just arrived. Um, I think you, you were told probably about no less than 25 times about my talk today, <laughs> uh, least of all by me, but <laughs> I am sure you, uh, thank you for complying and, and, and uh, uh, hopefully that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of commitment will, will also apply to my, to my classes next week. Um, but, but I appreciate your goodwill in, sustain, uh, in, in, in uh, surviving that. Um, I would also like to thank um, uh, last year's um, MSc students and also um, many PhD, former PhD students who are here. Um, one student in particular from last year um, uh, launched a kind of Twitter campaign <laughs> uh, to get people to come out to, uh, to listen to a talk on peacekeeping, which I think in and of itself is a kind of, uh, a kind of uh, amazing gendered feat, really. Um, and I want to say a big thank you to Claire for that wonderful introduction and also to my wonderful colleagues in the Department of Gender Studies and the Center for Women, Peace and Security who have been encouraging me and supporting my work for the past years. And uh, um, before I forget, I'd really like to thank Helen and uh, Kate and Hazel who are the administrative brains in our department. We've had a particularly hectic week still to come uh, more and uh, so they've managed to um, really um, um, put up with all of my very last minute uh, sort of requests, um, pleas and so on and uh, enabled this PowerPoint presentation to get up here in, in just record time. But um, yesterday, my colleague um, Diane Perens encouraged me to take some breathing space in the middle of a hectic and packed day. And today, I've been steadily fed by my colleague and friend, Anya Plomien, who has left parcels of food in front of my door as I um, prepared. And discussions with a number of colleagues has resulted in, really, has really informed um, these reimaginings. Um, in particular, um, um, Aiko, a PhD student uh, in the department, we've been kind of nerding out about peacekeeping for a number of years. Um, discussions with um, Sumi Madak, Claire Hemmings, Leticia Sabse, 
Sonia Correa and Kimberly Crenshaw have really, I think, um, helped to shape much of this work. And I say these specific thank yous as part of the practice that I wish to advocate for in studies, um, in studies of peacekeeping and gender scholarship more generally, which is a, a politics of recognition. Um, that is about acknowledging all the conversations that have resulted in a, a writing product or a thinking product, and all those works that so often do not appear on articles and books on various subjects deemed to be the property of public man. Peacekeeping is, not surprisingly, no exception. But it's incredibly enriching to be working in an environment which takes seriously the importance of feminist, gender, queer, and post-colonial theory, to name a few. And this has given me the opportunity to think and write about militarized contexts in ways that might not have been possible in other more traditional, discipline-bound departments. And it is this everyday feminist praxis, as Claire was so, um, so eloquently sharing with you, it's this everyday feminist practice or habit that has enabled me to maintain what Cynthia Enlow calls a necessary feminist curiosity about all things military in these times. So a sort of nerd trigger warning and caveat. For some strange reason, I have always found doing research on peacekeeping and peacekeepers to be exceptionally enjoyable stuff. I don't know why. Maybe Aiko has some ideas <laughs> about it. Occasionally, I meet students in my class who share this somewhat odd niche interest. Peacekeeping, of course, operates in uh, contradictory and highly unequal settings giving rise to peacekeeping economies where military men, that is, national soldiers, dominate the landscape. These spaces are filled with the promise of liberal peace, where the legacies of war are supposed to fade away as peace emerges from the overwhelming and powerful presence of the militarized international aid community. In my many years of researching peacekeeping environments, I must admit to being occasionally swept away by the prospects of an alternative life for those who have suffered war and injury. And peacekeeping conjures up some fairly emotive images, too. Peacekeepers handing out sweets to children, holding babies and rescuing the vulnerable. I encourage you, if you are interested, at the end of this uh, talk, maybe you'll be forever put off uh, on peacekeeping, but to Google peacekeeping, to Google peacekeepers, and to even visit the UN's extensive photo gallery, which captures much of the work of peacekeepers since peacekeeping's inception. However, most, more recently, many of you will have noticed the image of these brave and selfless men, as has often been coined, has sedimented around peacekeepers and peacekeeping scandals peacekeepers as predators of children in IDP camps and, women in the, uh, and predators of women in the post-war moment needing to survive and provide for their families. Media accounts from the last few years have featured stories of peacekeepers abusing young girls and boys in Central African Republic and Mali, an unfortunate corrective to the problematic angelic image of humanitarians in post-conflict settings. In South Sudan, peacekeepers were recently said to be retreating into aid compounds and worse still, as perpetrators of sexual and gender-based violence against their humanitarian colleagues. 
So in addition to a fascination with peacekeepers as a group of militarized men and women, I've been struck by the visceral experiences of moving through and in peacekeeping spaces. Peacekeeping sites are places marred by war, but filled with hedonistic leisure spaces, bars, cafes, white sandy beaches, luxury hotels, all of this aimed at aid and development professionals as well as investors ready to bring a post-conflict country into the global economy. They are a combination of many different life worlds in one often concentrated spot. UN civilian peacekeepers carrying designer handbags, wearing exclusive sunglasses and luxury watches, while ex-combatants sell handcrafted chess sets made from disposed champagne corks and musselets on local beaches outside restaurants and hotels near the UN compounds. Anyhow, that's just to give you a little bit of background about my personal and professional interest in this unique set of sites, where the international meets the local, loses the local, and gets the local in the end. When I first started to research peacekeeping and peacekeepers, I did so with the intent to understand this highly gendered context a bit better and to challenge any simple explanations for the skewed gender composition and exploitative gender relations apparently present in the growing number of what was often referred to as sex scandals. In around 2003, I embarked with a former colleague on a study of gender relations and security in the peacekeeping missions of Liberia, Kosovo, Haiti, and Cyprus. In preparing for this research study, I reviewed a number of key academic texts. And these texts comprise the field of, of what is generally known as critical peacekeeping studies. So just to give you um, a little picture of some of these, some of these uh, texts, amongst the key contributors were a number of really interesting feminist, post-colonial, and anti-militarist anti scholars who drew on a range of concepts and theories to explore not whether peacekeeping was necessary or effective in a given context, but how peacekeeping is constituted and the various impacts this ordering of society and organization of space has on both peacekeepers and the peace kept. Three critical axes or sites of discussion were identified as being quite central during the period of around 2003-2005, um, which is when there was a kind of burgeoning of, of um, gender, um, post feminist, post-colonial, and anti-militarist studies. So um, just, to, just to point out some of these uh, amazing texts that you'll no doubt be reading um, on some of my courses. Um, the post-war moment edited by Cynthia Coburn and Dubravka Zarkov, the uh, um, Sandy Whitworth's uh, really interesting account, Men, Militarism, and UN Peacekeeping, a Gendered Analysis. These were some of the first kind of gendered um, and feminist texts. Um, You'll see the, the, um, another edited collection that came out, a brilliant collection of, of essays, um, Gender, Conflict, and Peacekeeping, which houses one of the first articles, actually, to look at gender training, uh, gender awareness training, gender sensitized training, um, uh, by, um, by someone who had worked, actually, for a number of years as a gender advisor um, in peacekeeping missions. 
So um, some other uh, kind of interesting texts. The, the enforcing, peace, enforcing the Peace text was not nearly as popular on reading lists and syllabi and in academic research. Nevertheless, it's one of the, one of the few texts that um, actually talked about imperialism and the imperial gaze of the peacekeeping industry. This book here by Shireen Razik, published again in 2004, was a hugely influential um, book, and I remember actually carrying it around in, um, in the peacekeeping missions while I was doing field work, and it raised a lot of hackles for peacekeepers themselves. They kept, you know, they kept sort of saying, well, what do you mean peacekeeping is a colonial project? Because I kept sort of saying, what do you think of that not being very reflexive in that moment? Um, <laughs> and when uh, they said, well, you know, I've got my MSc in human rights from LSE, uh, and, and so there's no way I can be colonial. Sorry to any of you who are in <laughs> human rights program. And I said, well, don't you think, you know, so, so this was a, a hugely influential book. But um, some of the stuff that I think um, Razik does in this book is to really, um, really unpack um, and expose um, some of the fault lines, uh, some of the ways in which racialization, um, nationalism, and really um, ideas about where the good men, where the good men come from in peacekeeping. In this text, as she um, so um, 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 goes through a, a, a very serious and, and graphic case of peacekeeping violence committed against. Uh, um, Somalian citizen uh, while the uh, Canadian Airborne Regiment was, um, was stationed there. So, um, as I said, um, oops, I've gone ahead. So, um, these texts comprise the field of what is generally known as critical peace peacekeeping studies. And the publications of these texts, I think, brought out issues of politics and power relations well challenging the idea that peacekeeping was a benign activity. And what these texts did was to introduce feminist and post-colonial analyses into the study of peacekeeping by focusing on some of the everyday activities of peacekeepers and the peace kept, and not only to focus on the macro or structural operations of peacekeeping. And in addition, they drew attention to the simple truth that sending those trained in organized violence to keep the peace was bound to result in a host of problems. And these texts challenged the ways in which gendered and imperialist thinking and culture gave rise to different forms of military intervention. And I think these texts spoke to me in a number of ways that the other literature on peacekeeping did not. This literature was often referred to, this, this other literature was often referred to as the problem-solving literature and focused much more on improving and reforming peacekeeping as practice rather than on criticizing its ideological foundations. So, um, in addition to these texts, I think um, myself and a few others have also tried to make some interventions to add to some of this um, I think, critical work. Um, myself and my colleague, Paul Highgate, as Claire's already mentioned, tried to do something quite different in insecure spaces, which was to draw on those colonial critiques, those post-colonial critiques in particular, um, those feminist critiques, 
um, and to really um, examine those in the context of the spaces of peacekeeping, as I've already shared with you, I, I was quite interested in those. Um, so in this, we sort of combine a number of sort of sociological theories on performance, on socio-spatial power dynamics, and we really tried to also draw out critiques of, of militarization in that, to draw attention to the very militarized nature of peacekeeping. Um, a little differently, uh, Robert Rubenstein actually focuses very nicely on the um, cultural dynamics between and amongst peacekeepers as well as in relation to the local populations. Really fascinating account that Rubenstein gives of the um, symbolic importance of uniforms, medal parades, and so on, some of the things that I've subsequently then been inspired to write about. Really interesting in relation to the performance of various um, gendered identities. And then James Sloan, I think this is one of the only books that has militarization in the title and peacekeeping. I think there's kind of an allergy to writing about <laughs> militarization and peacekeeping together. So just some interesting kind of developments post um, this feminist and post-colonial sort of moment. Um, just to give you... Uh, um, some more, uh, more recent texts, which I think are grappling with some of the same issues that I'm going to talk about in a moment. Um, again, another wonderful uh, text, Gender, Sex, and the Post-National Defense, Militarism and Peacekeeping by Annika Kronzel. Really interesting account. Um, again, exploring and trying to criticize militarism, uh, really the ideology of the military as the ultimate solution um, to global conflicts. Again, really, really interesting um, kind of account. And one that I think um, tries to offer a critical lens from, uh, from within the Nordic context. Again, another context where, that might, where, where peacekeepers might be seen to be sort of almost indigenous to the sort of, to the, to the nation and might be seen to have uh, gender equality as a kind of almost biological property. Uh, so um, this is really a kind of interesting piece of work. Um, Claire Duncanson's wonderful book, Forces for Good, which is really, in a sense, trying to look at some of the more positive aspects of peacekeeping, look at, looking at how military masculinities can work in the service of individual male soldiers, but also in what ways they seriously fail in the context of international interventions. Again, a wonderful edited collection, Rethinking Peacekeeping, Gender Equality and Collective Security by Diane Otto and Gina Heathcote. Amazing kind of accounts in there of both um, policy and practice perspectives, um, perspectives from the ground, as well as perspectives on justice in relation to a number of, of um, um, survivors of sexual exploitation and abuse, as well as survivors of sexual violence in the conflict period. Uh, very recently, um, just last year, Leslie Pruitt um, published this book, The Women in Blue Helmets. She spent a considerable amount of time um, uh, deep hanging out with um, uh, very, uh, 120 plus squad of uh, female peacekeepers in uh, both in India at, and on their deployment in Liberia. Again, a really interesting account. And then, um, just this year, 
Uh, Sabrina Karim and Kyle Beardsley published this uh, book, Equal Opportunity Peacekeeping. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the prize that it's recently won. It's a really comprehensive account of uh, female peacekeeping, actually, looking at uh, what female peacekeepers, looking, providing a, a sort of quantitative map of where female peacekeepers have been deployed, where they come from, what their impact is, but really also some um, wonderful interviews with female peacekeepers about what they think um, are the obstacles to further, uh, a further increase in their participation. And actually what um, Beardsley and Kareem conclude is that um, actually... Um, the language of operational effectiveness is, is particularly problematic, and most of the female peacekeepers actually want um, equal opportunities in this male-dominated profession. So um, these texts, I think, um, show that uh, the feminist and post-colonial, in a sense, um, critiques haven't left the field, in a sense. They haven't been completely excavated. But certainly there is a kind of, I mean, there's, there's some critical uptake of, um, of again, of post-colonial sort of perspectives. Um, in this um, book by Philip Cunliffe, really interesting, uh, again, on, he takes up actually the imperial, um, the imperial question of peacekeeping, um, but doesn't take on uh, significantly the impact of that imperial gaze that that kind of colonial practice in relation to gender relations uh, at all. So they're, they're kind of, the women are really missing, the female peacekeepers are kind of missing from this account, considering that the only, um, the only female peacekeepers deployed are from the global south. It's a, it's a little bit of a, um, but actually um, Phillips uh, working on a, a project right now which is looking at female peacekeepers and global governance, uh, and sorry, and governance feminism, which is really exciting. So I, I think he is um, expanding this. And this account, Peaceland, again, really, um, really kind of changing the face of peacekeeping studies by um, looking at this everyday politics and practices, but again, not a lot of attention to issues of coloniality, of the problematic power relations between peacekeepers and, um, and the peace kept. Nevertheless, it, it, it tries to situate a, a different view. So, so I, I, I can't in any way um, completely criti criticize Altizer's, um interesting new innovation in the field. But over the years, I've, I've observed a reluctance to take up and to further various concepts and theories and what I call an overall depoliticization of the theses that peacekeeping is either an industry, an institution, or a project. So I've come across so many discussions. Uh, many of you will have seen this literature if you're familiar with peacekeeping, of the unintended consequences. That's a kind of classic phrase that's used in policy practice and in Academia. In fact, there's a book about the unintended consequences of peacekeeping. Um, as if to say that peacekeeping is some sort of ad hoc neighborhood watch group that sprouted up <laughs> purely out of the goodliness of random individuals, or perhaps even out of a sense of guilt about the pain and suffering of others. As Razik so eloquently articulated, the focus of peacekeeping 
helped to recenter many global north countries as the ultimate victims of peacekeeping's excesses and failures. She famously wrote of Canadian General Romeo Dallaire's autobiography titled Shake Hands with the Devil. She, she, she um, uh, characterized it as an account of, quote, stealing the pain of others because his narrativized experiences, she argues, eclipsed the suffering of those who did not have the privilege of rank and nation. What I do in the next sections is to provide a kind of brief overview of a few key concepts or ideas that I have seen emerge um, somewhat within the study of post-colonial and feminist international relations, feminist critical military studies, and feminist geography more generally. And I pose them really as kind of not as the concepts we need to use to talk about peacekeeping or anything else, but really as concepts to help me think through what it is that I'm missing about um, those critical texts that I, that I showed you much earlier. So I've been wondering why these concepts and similar bodies of theories have not had purchase in um, these, these concepts of feminist, um, um, post-colonial, and sort of um, socio-spatial, uh, as well as anti-militarist, why they haven't had the, the long-standing purchase that I found so exciting in those early days of conducting research. And, and so my argument is that these, uh, these other concepts that I'm going to introduce might help me return not to the problem-solving literature or the critical peacekeeping literature per se, but that I might be able to spend some time dwelling, that is, imagining a different organization of post-conflict life, a different experience for those who work and live in peacekeeping spaces. So, um, hard to read, but I'll read it out. So, um, I start with this um, concept and concepts of power geometries and space-time continuum. And I'm, I'm so influenced by... Um, the recent uptake of uh, Doreen Massey's work by um, Alexandra Hyde, who works at um, UCL, who's been doing research on military wives in the British Armed Forces. And she really um, you know, um, shared with me the joy of working with some of these feminist geographic concepts. And so I thought it would be interesting to think about the work that I did previously in Insecure Spaces with a kind of, I guess, um, revitalization or kind of re-energization of, uh, of some of these ideas. And I like what, what Massey says about um, challenging uh, the, the sort of canon of um, geographical perspectives on space. And she sort of, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, um, complains about the kind of complacency with space and place um, that uh, um, geographers have relied on and you know, I think you've got, to, you've got to admire a feminist geographer who directly takes on David Harvey's work <laughs> and says it's not enough. Um, so she says, now I want to make one simple point here, and that is about what one might call the power geometry of it all. The power geometry of time-space compression. And she's referring here to Harvey's concept of time-space compression. She says it, it really isn't gendered. It isn't he, he doesn't take account of these different social axes of identity. 
She says, for different social groups and different individuals are placed in very distinct ways in relation to these flows and interconnections. This point concerns not merely the issue of who moves and who doesn't, although that is an important element of it. It is also about power in relation to the flows and the movement. Different social groups have distinct relationships to this anyway, differentiated mobility. Some people are more in charge of it than others. Some initiate flows and movement, others don't. Some are more on the receiving end of it than others. Some are effectively imprisoned by it. So what I like about these, uh, these dual concepts uh, that Massey talks about is that they allow me, in a sense, well, they provide a repoliticization of the concept of space, and they move the analysis of space away from this idea of space as a kind of stasis and towards an understanding of space as intersecting with temporality rather than as opposed. And I just wanted to take this moment to think about and to share with you some of the work that I did on, um, on peacekeepers in, in Liberia um, and in relation to their sort of um, their accounts of domestic life and the domestic economy. So I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, um, one of those publications, which I can share with you should you wish to uh, have some nighttime reading. Um, peacekeeping spaces, as I said, are male-dominated, and not just in terms of the peacekeepers themselves. In Liberia, for example, many of the supermarkets, restaurants, and bars are owned and operated by businessmen and male migrant workers. Um, and they tend to live away from their female spouses and families for long periods of time. The concentration of male merchant and laboring classes um, alongside um, the predominantly male peacekeeping personnel gives rise to hyper-masculine spaces. In contrast to accounts of sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping missions, which gives the impression of an abundance of foreign military men alongside that of an equally large group of young local women, the mission in Liberia appears gender imbalanced in everyday international spaces too. While many women are from the global north, this is a small number in comparison to the number of male civilian workers, and these spaces are thus also gender lopsided. Um, while contingents, both military and, and police, have accommodation and subsistence taken care of by their national governments via the UN, Civilian peacekeepers, civilian police, and military staff officers are required to make their own arrangements. With the guidance of the welfare and security offices of the, with the guidance and security offices of the mission. So accommodation costs can be really exorbitant, with accommodation in Liberia generally tallying up no less than 1,200 US per month. As one peacekeeper argued, I can get an apartment in central Paris for the price I'm paying here. The quality of accommodation varies, and as such, individuals make a multitude of decisions about how much domestic work they wish to put into making their space livable, clean, private, and homely being some of the characteristics desired. Peacekeepers can spend a considerable amount of time and money um, on obtaining a certain level of independence. For example, by purchasing a washing, mach washing machine so as to be able to launder their own clothing or choosing the dearest accommodation that is directly next to their place of work. Some purchase houseplants, paintings, local made furniture, and subscribe to international satellite and cable television channels and internet packages in order to make their living spaces as desirable as possible. 
And so while these peacekeeping spaces are visibly masculine in that they contain many men, they are also spaces that require the management and maintenance of the body and the domestic. Peacekeeping itself is often viewed as a soft form of martial work. So it was interesting, however, that my peacekeeper participants did not outsource domestic labor in these spaces only uh, to women, as is common practice with expatriates and extractive industries um, uh, um, staff in other Global South contexts. Individual peacekeepers rely to a certain degree on the abundance of local help for domestic and security services, but many claim that they can clean better and do not wish to engage in contractual negotiations and conversations. So these traditional military displays of self-sufficiency are manifested among many of the peacekeepers who show domestic proficiencies, not while engaged in war, but rather while in the service of peace. And so these peacekeepers boasted not only about their sometimes newfound abilities to sweep, mop, dust, and deep clean, but their skills at cooking and preparing food from the homeland. While undoubtedly of practical value, these are also performances in which the peacekeepers are keen to show that they have mastered domestic work. In some cases, domestic performances include hearty meals centered around meat, alcohol, and the outdoors. After one of the peacekeepers um, uh, that I interviewed returned from a trip home, um, a whole side of salted barbecued pork was smuggled into his suitcase. Really interesting. And he set about making this traditional um, um, Balkan stew. Amongst the Indian peacekeepers, cooking and cleaning together enabled individuals to make connections across time and space, across linguistic and ethnic divides. And so, as one, as one peacekeeper shared, since visiting India House Weekly, I've put on 10 pounds. Peacekeepers invested considerable time in adapting their accommodation and to stave off boredom and to participate in a form of consumption and accumulation towards the good life. And so, in doing so, produced an alternative domestic economy. So what I want to say about this example um, of, of some of my, that comes out of some of my research is really that these, um, these concepts of um, space and time actually um, attuned me to looking at these, in a sense, these non-conventional sites. So to kind of um, to look at the, the way in which gender relations are both challenged by peacekeepers in, in, in these spaces, the kinds of social reproductive work they were doing in those spaces really, uh, I think, made me think about uh, peacekeeping uh, in, in different ways and at a different critical uh, register. One of the things that I did just share one more thing and then move on to the next concept. Um, one of the things that the peacekeepers repeatedly told me was, um, was um, that um, their, in their discussions of domesticity and gender, they, um, they told me a lot about insects and household pests. Several of the peacekeepers told me of their anxiety about health and hygiene in relation to mosquitoes and cockroaches. And many of the peacekeepers talked about their domestic battles with pests. One such example involved a peacekeeper being attacked while driving after using an entire canister of repellent and witnessing a small army of rats infesting his work porta cabin. Um, the narrative of fighting pests actually um, very quickly 
um, uh, spilt over into uh, a kind of racist and colonial set of scripts. Um, one peacekeeper um, talked about fighting, fighting pests uh, in, in the environment more generally um, and against, uh, uh, you know, exposed his, his racist views towards Liberians and Africans more generally. He recounted an inst- incident where one of his flatmates had brought a sex worker home and sent her into his, and his, his colleague, his flatmate, had sent this woman into his room. He claimed that he was horrified about the presence of that woman, whom he believed was a sexual health threat and that he had, imme- he had immediately asked her to leave. Another peacekeeper narrated the nightmares he had about all the cockroaches in his flat and that he dreamt that he'd opened his mouth while sleeping and that an infestation of cockroaches had made its home in his body. And he shared how he'd spent so many sleepless nights fearing and fighting bugs in his house. These, these, um, these accounts actually were very much um, um, metaphors by these peacekeepers for um, their disgust and their dislike of um, the peacekeeping space in which they were in and the peace kept. Admitting that they were um, uh, knowledgeable experts in domestic knowledge um, that they'd acquired through their military training within which they were embedded in order to present themselves as better than the local women at cleaning and as defenseless individuals in a backward land of pests, vampires, insects, and urban ineptitude was really a way of perpetuating these colonial beliefs. And so I think this struck me as reason to, um, to take um, some of these concepts, um, in particular that Razik outlines, uh, more seriously many years after um, Razik's publication, and in the absence of taking up some of these um, critiques in, in uh, more recent work. So um, that was one. And I think that links very nicely to the work on the global color line um, because uh, Razik talks about um, the color line as the, the kind of primary, the primary mechanism um, by which she understands peacekeeping practice. She said, uh, in, in the opening of her book, she uh, quotes um, Dubois, who says, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line the relation of the darker to the lighter of races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and in the islands of the sea. And she suggests that, you know, in her study of peacekeeping violence, that Canadians come to know themselves in intimate ways through the color line, through establishing and affirming this color line. So some of my research on global South peacekeepers, I think, um, again, makes me go back to this work, makes me go back to this concept of the color line and to, uh, and, and to hold on to it as an important critical concept for future peacekeeping work. Um, I gave you a little bit of insight into some of the narratives of, um, of peacekeepers. And I think um, many of them, for example, the peacekeepers that I interviewed from West Africa and from Nigeria, um, had this um, um, real apprehension about revealing any kind of story that suggested that their participation in peacekeeping would somehow be a failure or could somehow be critiqued. Um, So um, in 2012 and 2013, I was interviewing peacekeepers again in Liberia, uh, mostly male peacekeepers from West Africa, 
um, and uh, female peacekeepers from South Asia. And in this research, the male peacekeepers from the global south were particularly conscious about their image and reputation within the peacekeeping space. Um, they, they immediately recognized their precarious position, um, their precarious global position in the peacekeeping industry. And they, when I was visiting the Nigerian battalion stationed outside of Monrovia, I was told repeatedly by the commander that his men were not involved in sexual exploitation and abuse and that this was a result of a strict disciplinary regime instituted by the leaders and the top brass. And this statement was repeated at least three times throughout the interview, despite the fact that I'd made clear that the objective was to research the everyday experiences of peacekeepers and their positive contributions to the local communities. Nigerian peacekeepers portrayed themselves as hardworking and upstanding men who prided themselves on a professional and disciplined working environment. By not interacting with local people other than under very regulated conditions, Nigerian peacekeepers refashioned themselves under a more disciplined and clean masculinity, and their accounts were continually and, and implicitly comparative. The commander recounted how his men were highly trained and professional, and he facilitated a further set of observations and interviews with a group of Nigerian peacekeepers who were giving physics lessons at the local high school. Um, a central concern to Nigerian male peacekeepers was to improve their reputation both amongst locals and internationals as they believed their conduct and image from previous missions was less than commendable. And, and um, this is a really interesting, I think, artifact of this um, post-colonial critique because in the book that I did with Paul Highgate, we had a chapter looking at perceptions of peacekeepers from different national contingents. And every time we presented this work at di in different audiences, you know, we'd say, okay, the Bangladeshi peacekeepers were perceived as, you know, being more humanitarian-centered, more humanitarian-oriented, uh, and the Nigerian peacekeepers were, were perceived as being the kind of hard, muscular peacekeepers. And every time we presented it, people would say, yes, but the Bangladeshi peacekeepers are quite small, or the Nigerian peacekeepers are quite big. And we were saying, no, 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 this is the perceptions. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of slippage in, in that. Um, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of um, room for, for analysis in that continual slippage and that kind of categorization, that use of a, a color line to actually place Global South peacekeepers in, into a particular space in which they... Their, their, their whole identity, their whole peacekeeping identity is all about mitigating uh, a sort of bad reputation. And of course, they're, they're, um, uh, the, just to give you a sense of the, the numbers of uh, peacekeepers from the global south in all the missions, I mean, just to give you a sense in, 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 in terms of the labor power of the Indian military, I, I, I give these numbers to give you a sense of the, the size and the possibility. Uh, so the Indian military, um, so this is not including the police, say one, about one million soldiers, uh, 250,000 are stationed in, uh, um, uh, on the border of Kashmir. Um, so that leaves 750,000 <laughs> who may or may not be eligible. So it's, it's really not... Uh, um, it's not surprising that, you know, 10,000 
uh, peacekeepers from India can be deployed to missions uh, uh, across the world. Whereas if you think about this, um, this in relation to Nordic countries, I mean, I think Canada sends less than 50. Uh, similarly, Norway, Sweden, very small numbers of peacekeepers. So this global, this global color line that I talk about in relation to who, who does the peacekeeping work, who does the peacekeeping labor, is really very much um, um, in contrast to the images that you see very often of peacekeepers, um, and especially the, the idea of um, um, the Canadian, I think, as the quintessential peacekeepers. Um, So, moving on to um, militarized femininities. Again, a concept that um, um, a number of people have actually discussed in relation to um, um, uh, peacekeeping. Uh, very recently, um, Catherine Baker has started to work on a project looking at female military masculinities um, um, in popular culture, but also drawing on her, her work in, in peacekeeping missions. I'm really interested why we haven't, why we focus so much, uh, even in those early texts which were feminist inspired, why we focus so much on military masculinities as I do myself, um, when there is this, this kind of interesting um, set of experiences by the growing number of women deployed um, to peacekeeping missions. Um, that first picture with the fire is a picture that, um, uh, that a UN photographer actually took while I was attending this uh, medal parade ceremony in Liberia, honoring the work of, um, of female peacekeepers. And as I've, you know, some of you have heard this, me share this story before, but it's incredibly, incredibly emotional and moving uh, moment, uh, despite my anti-militaristic <laughs> uh, standpoints. Uh, to see 120 women in uh, military uniform uh, being recognized for their service um, and to see that, that kind of critical mass of women was really impressive. Unfortunately, in the, um, in the sort of celebration afterwards, there's a kind of cultural celebration that's often put on by military peacekeepers, um, and they invite, um, you know, um, high-ranking representatives from other militaries um, and uh, senior, senior civilian personnel uh, from the UN to attend this to sort of, uh, you know, provide a kind of um, a hosting a and a celebration of their achievements. Um, and in this, they had various performances. Um, so this is just... Uh, the penultimate one, or the ultimate one, um, of the uh, of the afternoon, where um, they just pulled out this ring and lit it on fire, and then these these women actually jumped through it. Um, they also performed a, a number of other martial um, arts um, uh, sort of moves, and um, one of the female peacekeepers, who was then actually serving food in the evening to all the guests, um, you know, had blood seeping through actually her 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 top um, because she had um, allowed a, a, a big big heavy tile plate to be smashed on her shoulder and. The, the MC of the event had said, and as you can see, she has not, um, she has not shown, she has not flinched at all, she has not shown any weakness. And so these, these, um, these really interesting examples of whether, whether these individuals need to take up masculinity or whether they are actually creating and producing 
a kind of mimicry, a kind of um, a kind of uh, mimicry not of just of masculinity, but a kind of mimicry of of militarized femininity. Um, again, of course, you have. Um, uh, many of the female peacekeepers are not just jumping through hoops of fire, but are actually doing a lot of the medical work um, that takes place with local communities. So in a way, militarized femininities also provides the space, I think, for not really criticizing some of those um, earlier, earlier um, um, accounts that um, people like Razek and Whitworth and... Um, Cynthia Coburn um, um, outlined for us. Okay. Where's Claire? Shall I stop soon? Five minutes. Okay. So, um, let me end in that five minutes <laughs> with the two most important points of the talk. <laughs> Always happens. Um, but it's all been heading towards this. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is why um, feminist standpoint, uh, which appeared in a lot of the earlier work, it appears in Razik's work, although Razik is always categorized as a post-colonial scholar. She's never categorized as a, or as a critical race scholar. She's never categorized as a feminist or gender studies scholar, which I think, which she herself has actually complained about, that she's in a sense um, doing some of that um, intersectional work that I'm going to talk about in a moment. But I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, in, in 2010, Cynthia Coburn um, wrote a paper uh, on um, gender as causal in, um, in war and militarization. And in it, she advocated for us to return to feminist standpoint theory uh, as important in studies of militarization. And uh, I think, interestingly, I haven't seen any... Uh, significant discussions of the use of this term in the recent peacekeeping literatures and the recent work on gender and perhaps even imperialism. Um, more importantly, I think that leads me also to, to think about why it is that certain subjects are not studied in those peacekeeping spaces. And that's really where standpoint theory has, I think, sensitized me. I'm thinking about black women's lives um, in particular. I'm thinking about the work of Patricia Hill Collins, um, but also in the work um, by Kimberly Crenshaw, about starting from, um, starting from women's lived experiences. Why do, we, you know, why do we not have studies of all these fantastic peacekeeping women um, that starts from their experiences or starts from their, um, their own perspective? Of course, Leslie Pruitt's attempts to do that, but it also, I think, attempts to understand um, uh, female peacekeepers' experiences in relation to um, peacekeeping operations and the, the overall... Um, goal of, of gender mainstreaming rather than at the micro level of what, how are gender identities constituted in, 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 the, uh, in the experiences of individual peacekeepers. Um, additionally, the peace kept as subjects in their own right. They tend to feature more as instrumental in the accounts of 
um, the, the account that I showed you from uh, Severine Autizer, they tend to be, in a sense, sometimes used instrumentally. So we don't tend to see them as subjects of the colonial gaze, as gendered subjects in and of themselves. Um, and I think this is, this is one of the reasons why I want to turn back to some of these, um, these earlier feminist theories that inspired much of the, the early work. Okay, so I'll just end by... Um, doing two quick slides. <laughs> One is on intersectionality, and um, in a way I think I've discussed intersectionality in a recent piece uh, quite extensively, and, and, and so I don't um, want to talk about it so much at, at this moment, um, but to say that um, these, these critical concepts are not only um, erased or evacuated from some of these um, um, studies, but they're actually, some of these critical concepts are used in contexts where we might not expect to find them. So my recent tracking of intersectionality in um, critical um, military studies, in feminist military studies, um, has, I think, alerted me to some of the problems of not paying attention to the, the critical concepts that we find in feminist theory and post-colonial theory in anti-militarist studies. And, and this uh, is an interesting quote from uh, Orna Sassen Levy's work, um, where she talks about her use of intersectionality. She says, the scholarship on militarized masculinities thus combines intersectionality theory by examining different groups of men, and she outlines these different groups of men inside the Israeli military, with the inequality regime approach, which looks at various military locations, um, and she's really talking about uh, a number of class concepts as well as rank and, um, and deployment roles, and by deconstructing the monolithic conception of militarized masculinity, she argues that this research enables us to explore how the military relies on distinct constructions of military masculinity and their interdependence. Again, a really interesting um, development, and this I see slowly moving into the peacekeeping studies literature, which is a kind of adoption of intersectionality, which um, doesn't return us to any of that earlier work where we looked at, where Razik looked at the intersections of oppression, actually, um, where Whitworth even looks at the, um, at the intersecting or interlocking systems um, that work um, um, in the peacekeeping industry. And in fact, what you see is really intersectionality being, in a sense, depoliticized, watered down, and used to look at very privileged groups of military men. And so I guess I want to to kind of um, expose this development and, and call for, for uh, I guess, a kind of questioning of it. I think I'll leave the last slide for um, discussion because <laughs> I think it's going to come up. <laughs> um, uh, and um, hopefully um, you will ask me some questions about why I titled it Reimagining Peacekeeping and then never got around to talking about imagination, but hopefully you can do that with me. Well, thank you so much, Marsha, for an incredibly um, insightful and inspiring both mapping of the field of uh, feminist peacekeeping studies and also offering us uh, interventions uh, that um, drawing on your own incredibly interesting ethnographic research and, and suggesting different ways of thinking about the relationship between both critical uh, military studies and 
uh, feminist and post-colonial interventions as a way of trying to repoliticize that field. Um, I really loved the ways in which you're both drawing on and departing from the texts that you provide us um, with, a, with a, a kind of overview of. Um, and I really feel like I, I've got a, a sense of both the field and, and the ways in which you're intervening in it, which is an amazing feat for uh, 45 minutes. <laughs> so um, thank you uh, um, very much indeed. I have a huge number of uh, questions myself, um, but I'm going to um, open up for uh, questions, for comments, uh, for anything that you would like to ask Marsha further about, including the question of curiosity and imagination, of course. So can I have a sense of who would like to ask questions? I know it's hard at the beginning. I can always ask it's something. So but <laughs> He's kept out. Yeah, hurry it. Hi. Um, thank you, Marsha, for a really interesting um, talk. Um, I was thinking as you were speaking about the relationship between militarism and coloniality, um, and I guess kind of wondering whether there, whether I guess at a simple level, wh whether one can exist without the other, um, and whether whether we can intertwine, um, de disentangle them, whether we want to. Um, and I guess related to that, what is it then that looking at peacekeeping uh, contexts can tell us about uh, gender and militarization, which we perhaps don't see um, through looking at militarization in other contexts? Thank you. you want me to answer that now? Yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, Thanks very much, Harriet. You know, um, um, uh, large part of what I'm trying to do in this next new mapping project is, is very much inspired by some of your work in particular, especially on the, deep, the, the move of depoliticization, what happens in individuals' explanations for violence or racism and so on. So I think, I think you captured that really well in your question. I, I think I was... Um, I was uncomfortable with the artificial separation of those categories of the feminist, and I was stumbling along as I was writing feminist and then post-colonial and anti-militarist and then <laughs> kind of trying to group them. And then when can I just say feminist? When can I say post-colonialist on its own? And, you know, so I think that tells you a little bit about, you know, this, the struggle to tell a story about this as a kind of coherent trajectory, which it certainly isn't. And uh, in, in fact, it would be disingenuous for me to say that this is sort of kind of evolution of peacekeeping studies. But I guess, um, I guess what I'm struck with, and maybe I need to think about what, what texts would exemplify this, which is that um, an increasing number of publications, for example, on gender and peacekeeping, on various aspects of it, with absolutely no reference to post-colonial critiques or to anti-militarist uh, critiques. And these are by um, feminist scholars who I work with who are committed to feminism as, a, as theory and practice. And I'm just wondering what has happened um, um, and why it hasn't been taken up. So I guess... What I, what I want to say in answer to your question is, what, and I've been asked this question throughout the kind of um, career of working on peacekeeping, and you know, as I shared with you recently, I think um, 
soon it will be at an end because there's only so much you can say about peacekeeping in a lifetime. And I think I've said it all here today. Um, um, I think peacekeeping um, is different than a generic militarized context. And I think it's because of all these intersections of the, the neoliberal economy, although those are, of course, very present around military bases and the military-industrial um, complex and so on. There are many spaces that have a similar milieu. But there's something about the, the desire that's written into peacekeeping as a power project. It's, you know, and... and um, Anna Agathangelou and Lily Ling beautifully titled their, their they were one of the first, I, I should have put their piece up as well, one of the first papers really to look at sexual exploitation and abuse and to use a kind of post-colonial lens is, is called Desire Industries. And I think there is something, something about peacekeeping spaces and peacekeeping context that um, makes us, um, that, that contains a lot of desires that need some critical analysis. Mm. I'm not sure if that does it, but... <laughs> uh, there's a question at the front and, and, and one at the back over there, so perhaps we'll take both and another one if other people have them, and then now that we're warming up. Uh, so there's a question there, yeah, and one, at, and one down here. Okay, me first? Yes, please. I'd like to ask about feminist curiosity in the imaginary, <laughs> actually. Um, and in particular, I'd like to know how you see the relationship between your theoretical work on feminist post the post-colonial and that anti-militaristic imaginary and the empirical work that you do and some of the um, perhaps gaps in that empirical work that you've indicated in the, in the talk. And I was particularly thinking about the work that you've indicated needs to be done on women peacekeepers who might not have an anti-militaristic imaginary themselves and how you'd build that in to your work on a feminist, post-colonial and anti-militaristic imaginary. Yeah. Uh, okay, should we um, ask yep. you, uh, for another question as well? Just cause we've I, might, I might have to minutes. ask it, yep, go for it. Um, well, yes, uh, down at the front here, please. If you have a, um, you've got a, you're probably new. Thank you. Um, thank you, Marsha. That was a fantastically interesting paper. I wanted to follow, follow on um, with the discussion about the imaginary, but also to link that back to some of the things that you were saying about images, because it, it seemed like there's quite a lot of starting points in your work which comes from, um, from images of peacekeeping and the disjuncture, uh, particularly a racialised disjuncture between those images and, and the, and the fieldwork that you do. So I just wanted to say a little bit more about how you include that in your, in your method and your analysis and how that might link to a question of, uh, of the cultural imaginary as well as the researcher's imaginary, as it were. I think it's good just to take those two because they're quite linked and, they're, and complicated. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'll start in reverse because I might need you to re-articulate that again. Um, uh, the thing about the images, really interesting, just at a conference recently and having this um, animated discussion about um, uh, new field, I guess new methods of doing work in critical military studies um, around sensory, sensory methods and paying attention to senses and... Um, um, talking with um, Kevin McSorley, who's um, doing this new project on the smell 
of war. And, um, and in this discussion, he was talking about the, the, this, in a sense, the obsession with the visual in sensory methods of, of war and, and also in, in studies of peacetime, but just this, this kind of centrality of the visual. Yet I have done exactly what <laughs> he says really we should be wary of. Um, because um, I guess what the power geometries in the space-time continuum um, uh, sensitized me to was that we can't actually, um, we, we are kind of, we are, we are socially and temporally embedded in those spaces and I couldn't, in a sense, divorce my own uh, sensory and embodied experience of being in those peacekeeping spaces from the ways in which gendered, racialized, um, and other and classed categories actually um, functioned. So, but I think that there's lots of contradictions in that because I think that in the way I narrate those peacekeeping spaces, I actually, you know, I actually constitute them in a sense. I, I further those colonial images. Um, uh, but I didn't really want to show you sort of boring pictures of offices and corridors. And, 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 and if people are interested in some of those contrasting images, um, you can see Karen Jurasek's um, film, uh, The Peacekeepers and the Women, which I think does a very nice job of that. So I'm, I'm not nearly as skilled. But I, I, I think I need to think more carefully about the relationship between the, nar the visual narrative that I provide and then what work those I want those concepts to do. So I think that there's I think there's some there's some serious conceptual contradictions going on there. <laughs> but that won't be that that already happened in one of the pieces um, um, that I was working on in terms of like you know even showing that image of the uh, female peacekeeper jumping through the hoop of fire. I mean I don't mean to exoticize it. I mean to actually to to show the 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 level of martiality that is expected of them. So, mm. so I need to think further about that. Um, and, and I think that kind of relates to your point about these gaps. And I think uh, you're right about the, the issue of, you know, if I'm, in, if I'm drawing on theories that are essentially anti-militaristic uh, or anti, you know, that form the basis of anti-militarism as a, as, a, as a hugely feminist project, um, um, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to analyze um, justly <laughs> or, um, I don't want to say objectively because that isn't possible, but I think generously uh, the way in which these uh, women narrate their experiences. Um, I mean, they are, they are heavily invested in martial culture. Um, but, I, but I also think it's imposed on them considerably. I mean, I didn't show you a picture, but I have shown it previously. Of um, they, Some of the women, like a couple of the women, three of the women were um, uh, also displayed other kind of weapons training, and then they were blindfolded and had to dismantle a handgun and, or a, a, a weapon in like, you know, I don't know, 20 seconds or something. It, 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 it was problematically farcical rather than, you know, something that one should laugh at. <laughs> I'm looking at Diane because she reminded me that it's important not to undermine actually my own analysis and somehow make them a, 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 a butt of a joke. Actually, but it, it, was, it, was, it was disturbing as it was surreal. So I think that there, again, I, I don't know that there's, there's lots of work to be done in that gap, I think. 
and I'm hoping some of those feminist concepts and post-colonial concepts can be used to actually, um, uh, to in a sense, stimulate uh, a feminist curiosity and a different kind of set of questions. I'm hoping that, and that's that's what kind of that's what I hoped with um, the reimagining, rather than rethinking, which um, again, which is the title of article that. Um, Paul Kirby and I wrote together. I mean, there's nothing against rethinking. I, saw you, I, I showed you a picture of a very great collection on rethinking um, um, various issues to do with peacekeeping. But I started to think that maybe that in itself is also playing into a lot of that, um, uh, a lot of that problem-solving kind of approaches to peacekeeping. And, and I, I wanted to, to think about dwelling, dwelling with those concepts so that we can reimagine a different you know, not to come up with solutions or resolutions or immediate fixes, um, not to sort of deploy more women or more gender-sensitive men, but to actually think about what, what kind of peacekeeping landscape um, we, we could possibly um, co-construct co or co-produce. Yeah. Uh, Diane, there's a question there. Um, thank you very much, Marsha, and I, I really enjoyed your talk, and I, I hope this question isn't unfair. But, um, Bring given, it on. Given Bring the, it on, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> given you know, your, your, your wish to co-construct knowledge and given your feminist post-colonial perspective, um, or, or, or not specifically you personally, but the literature in general, and you know, the interest that you therefore have on lived experiences and so on, can you say something about why there is this absence of analysis of the peace kept? Because I, I personally find mm. it really very curious that, you, you know, that, that you're studying someone or a group of people who are involved in a humanitarian project, allegedly, of some kind. Uh, you're kind of critiquing the notion of whether or not this is humanitarian or, or what the problems are associated with it. But I'm finding an absence of the people who are on the receiving end. And I, I just find it curious why, you know, that isn't an object of... An, well, you don't like object of analysis. That is not something that is studied more in this field. Are there other questions? Yeah, um, one right at the back and then one at the front. Hi, thank you so much. That was really fascinating. Um, I just, I wanted to ask a question about the, I suppose, the sites of reception for ideas like, like yours and like other research that you've spoken of that speaks to the kind of um, anti-militarist, post-colonial, and feminist approaches. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm interested because I think a lot of the kind of policy spaces tend to, I suppose, privilege the problem-solving type research. Um, so I'd just be interested in, in your sense of the extent to which either the UN itself or foreign policy spaces have kind of interacted with and intersected with the kind of research that you do. And then one question at the front. Thank you so much, Marsha. I'm very pleased to be here, to hear you today. Um, I, really, I was really intrigued and mobilized by this concept you brought at the end of industries of desire. 
And my question, I have two questions in relation to that that deal with entirely different areas or domains. The first is about the desire of states to engage with peacekeeping. And here I'm definitely thinking about my own country, and I'm thinking about Haiti. Mm -hmm. And I don't have time to elaborate on that, but may discuss that in another moment. But I, I, I know a little bit what was the desire of my own state to engage in peacekeeping in Haiti. But also thinking of India, what makes India that is deeply engaged with an arm, with war-keeping uh, in Kashmir to engage in peacekeeping. If you can elaborate on that, I think it's very useful. And my other question goes to the other side of the equation. I'm, I'm always very struck by the fact that all discussions around sexuality in relation to peacekeeping is about abuse, scandal, um, forced sex. What about sexual desire in peacekeeping? Almost sociability, homo heritages, forms of homosexuality. It, I, my sense is there's also a blank there, a blind spot. Yeah. Maybe wrong, but. Yeah, that's probably enough questions to answer for the minute, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and be fast only because then if no, there's more... Okay, good. Time. Okay, good. Oh, I think, I mean, that, you know, there was um, a whole, um, you know, collection of possible concepts that I could have put up there and um, desire is certainly one that I've been thinking about and, and we've actually spoken about it as well. Um, Diane Otto, in a very early piece on sexual, ex no, actually it's not an early piece. She wrote an early piece on sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping missions from the perspective of sort of like what, what are the kind of, like what are the legal avenues through which we can actually remedy this, um, this situation and, and sort of looked at the different elements of, of impunity and accountability and so on. But then in a later piece, actually explored this issue and, um, uh, of desire um, and about the need to actually think about desire um, as part of developing policy. So it kind of links to that. And I think that's one of the things that I've been particularly frustrated about in discussions with policy um, um, practitioners, um, UN uh, officials uh, tasked with the role to actually eradicate sexual exploitation and abuse. And, and there has been a reluctance um, to discuss, I mean, there's, there's not really a space to include sex work. Uh, there's not a space to include, like I, I keep imagining myself um, um, showing up at some high-level UN event and advocating for, you know, uh, um, sex help guides for peacekeepers on, you know, how to, how to self-satisfy themselves. <laughs> but then I sort of think, yeah, that would really not go down well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, when I broached the colonial subject with UN peacekeeping and then they pulled out the old LSE, Human Rights MSC, I can't even imagine what will come out when I <laughs> start suggesting that we, you know, um, that we um, 
think about more positive, sex-positive ways of actually addressing not needs, not sex needs, but um, um, but um, sex practices, actually. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't also simultaneously be challenging uh, hugely exploitative relationships. So I think there's so much work to be done on desire. And we actually had a, a conference a couple of years ago on um, that was titled um, Sex, Desire, and Violence. And um, um, we, we, we didn't come to any uh, conclusions because it really was about uh, sharing the conceptual space. Um, I think you're, you're also right about needing to be very, very clear about uh, the positionality of Global South men and that color line and the ways in which the colonial scripts of peacekeeping, uh, and this is what Razik would say, it doesn't matter where those men are from. They're enabling a certain set of power relations um, in those spaces. So it doesn't matter if they're from Brazil or they're from India. They, they are contributing to a certain exercise of power um, by virtue of the fact that the relationship in that peacekeeping space is precisely one of, of, of colonialism. Um, and the, the desire in those spaces, I think, again, I think, I think I need to do much more thinking about it. And I keep thinking about that section in a piece that you wrote, which was about the, the need for intimacy amongst all people in post-conflict spaces, <laughs> including the peace kept. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think we need to do more work on thinking about the role of intimacy as well as the role of desire as a, as a concept. Um, those, I think I said enough about those policy spaces. I'm going to be bringing my self-help, my, my sex guides to, to policy meetings. No, I, I think, actually, there's a lot of reluctance. Um, I was just thinking about the Global Summit a few years ago on sexual violence uh, in, in conflict, um, hosted by the UK government. There was this uh, wonderful opportunity at a panel with a whole bunch of uh, UN uh, um, officials who, and the theme of the panel was on sexual exploitation and abuse. I'm, I'm, I'm reinforcing the problematic obsession with that by just discussing it so many times. I feel like I'm, I'm part of the Nigerian contingent who was like, we didn't sexually exploit anyone. I know you're not doing research on that, but <laughs> we didn't. Um, um, but I think that there, there is a reluctance to have those, those wider discussions, those more frank discussions about variations um, in sexual practices from the sort of the, the, lesser, the less exploitative relations and also to talk about women and men's agency in those contexts. So I think the overall, the overall set of policies and frameworks assume victimhood. Um, and again, there is a, a lack of, I mean, one of the things that um, survivor organizations have been doing is been advocating for um, actually victims and survivors to be consulted more. That seems to have somehow now got a place in um, um, the um, Anto Antonio Guterres' recent statement. He's, he's highlighted the need to speak to the the people in peacekeeping missions who are subject to many of these practices. Um, but but I, I'm not sure that that's, you know, I'm not sure that in the bureaucracy of the peacekeeping industry, 
that, that that's going to actually work. And I think there's all kinds of stuff about whistleblowing and the assumptions about who can be a whistleblower in those contexts, about who is a victim and who is an agent. So there's, I think there's plenty of stuff. That's just an example on one particular um, set of issues. Um, Diane, I'm probably caricaturizing the work on peacekeeping by saying that there's virtually nothing about the peace kept, and there's probably people in the audience who've written about the peace kept and not called them the peace kept. I use that provocatively, the peace kept, because it is such an objectifying term. But, but really, I think that's how, um, how local populations... I mean, the, the other option is beneficiaries, and I, I think those words actually reveal the colonial... Um, the colonial gaze and the set of power relations. But I think that um, I found in my own work in Liberia on um, trying to get individuals in the early aftermath of conflict in Liberia, people were, um, individ local people were very keen to tell a very positive story about peacekeeping and peacekeepers. Um, and this was after just a few, quite a few um, incidents, uh, actually, and, and, and those, those texts had come out, and we were conducting the research in 2005, 2006, and there were a number of um, high-profile cases. And, and people didn't, in Liberia in particular, people didn't want to tell a negative story. And in fact, there's been very recently a lot of, um, a lot of lobbying for the UN not to leave um, Liberia. So in, in Haiti, they're, they're um, slowly drawing down, and in Liberia as well. And, and so there is, there is this, uh, you know, set of, um, of contradictions that exist between what is it, what is it that the peace, what is it that the peace kept have, have experienced, what is their, their experience of these peacekeepers and of these spaces, and what do they want to happen? So I, I think, um, yeah. That's not quite answering your question, but, yeah. Um, I'm afraid we don't have an, um, time for another round of um, questions, um, though I would ask um, and extend again the invitation for you to join us on the fifth floor of the old building in the senior dining room for a drink if you would like to uh, talk to Marsha or one another and continue the conversation we've obviously only just begun and that we hope that will continue throughout the uh, yeah, so thank, uh, join me in thanking Marsha again very much. <laughs>